Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. I'm today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, thanks, Pete. How are you tonight? Oh, I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, the Mayo Clinic. And today we have a real special treat for you. We have a discussion on capitellar osteochondral defects in the elbow. And we have a stellar guest here. We have Christopher Camp from the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Pete and Rachel. Really appreciate you guys having me on tonight. Well, we really appreciate you coming to talk to us. I wanted to start at the beginning here with the history. So when you see a patient um, with this problem, with a capitellar osteochondral defect, what are the factors that are most important to you when you approach this patient? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I think as with anything, it really starts with a good history. And, and I think the questions you ask, obviously you want to know the sort of the patient demographic. So what are the sports that they're playing? If they're playing any, what is their age, um, fight seal status, those types of things. But specifically uh, about the, the patient themselves, I, I really kind of want to know, you know, what, what they're passionate about, what drives them, how often are they playing their sport, what's their load, what's their volume, all of those types of issues too, because I think all of that sort of contributes. And then when we look at things sort of specific to their symptoms, things we want to know are what was the onset? Was it, was it an acute or an insidious onset slowly over time? Was there a distinct injury or accident that brought it on? And then also the chronicity. Obviously, timing is critical uh, with these, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get into later in the podcast. But really want to know, is this something that's just been, been going on for a few days or just a few months or even for some, sometimes they show up after a few years worth of symptoms. So I think that the, the chronicity is, is really critical uh, to tease out. And then lastly, really want to know, is this something that is just painful or are they starting to have mechanical symptoms? So any clicking, catching, locking. Uh, those types of things. And, and I think those are some of the, the big categories that I think of that we need to nail down right away. Chris, when you have a patient who comes in and you're suspecting capitellar OCD based on the factors that you just mentioned, particularly their history, and especially when you get into some of those mechanical symptoms, but even if they don't, you're just, you have a high index of suspicion. What are your favorite physical examination tests for this type of patient? Do you find any are more specific for you than others, or is this a difficult physical examination diagnosis and more of a history and imaging diagnosis? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, the thing that's sort of unique about these osteochondral lesions in the elbow is that the, you know, 95 plus percent of them tend to occur in the capitella. So it's it's incredibly well localized uh, uh, pathology and problem. So Obviously, we really kind of want to hone in on the lateral elbow, and that's what we're going to be asking, you know, in, in the history, sort of where their elbow symptoms are. And, and if it's a baseball player or a gymnast uh, who has lateral elbow pain, it, it capitellar OCD is, is almost, you know, sort of the go-to diagnosis uh, right away. Um, and so on the exam, we're, I, before I get focused on the lateral elbow, I check the rest of the elbow. I always start with range of motion. Want to make sure their range of motion is full, that it's fluid, that they don't have any mechanical blocks or, or stops to motion. And then I'll very quickly, I also examine sort of the anterior, medial, and posterior aspects of the elbow. So I try to get the, the asymptomatic portion of the elbow evaluated first. Then I really focus in on the lateral side. And then specific to the capitellar OCD, I try to find their area of pain. Very commonly, they'll have pain at the radiocapitellar joint line. So 
spend a little time trying to palpate and, and find the radiocapitellar joint and, and put a thumb on it and, and see if that uh, just pressing in that area bothers them, which it very commonly does. Next, I'll check for crepitus. So just take the arm through some gentle flexion and extension and then add in pronation, supination, and, and you know all of those in combination to see if I can palpate or hear any crepitus or if that reproduces their, their symptoms. And then if it does, we, we sort of kind of have a, an idea of what we're dealing with. If not, I will then add an axial load to it. So sort of a, a radiocapitellar shear test is, is sort of what we do, which is really kind of an analogous to a McMurray's test in the knee for the meniscus. So for the radiocapitellar shear, I'm still palpating the radiocapitellar joint, take their arm through an arc of flexion and extension while applying an axial load to it. And then I'm gonna mix in some pronation supination and valgus uh, force to, to sort of compress that radiocapitellar joint to see if that causes pain or produces any crepitus or any, any clicking at all. So those are the main things that I'll look for specifically for uh, these lesions in the capitellum. I wanted to ask you a question about that test because I've, I've found that test to be helpful too as tenderness palpation I've also found to be helpful. But tell me a little bit about do you think that in some of these patients, there's some concomitant medial laxity and that contributes? How do you tease that out in your exam? What's coming from the medial side in terms of laxity and how much is that contributing to potentially lateral problems? Mm -hmm. that, that's a great thought, Peter. And, and I think that that's why it is important to, to take a look at the medial side of the elbow. And I usually do that, as I mentioned beforehand. So what I'll do in, in that situation is I'll palpate the medial ulnar collateral ligament on the inside of the elbow just to see if they have any tenderness or palpation to that. And then I also think it's important that in most of these patients, I will also do a moving valgus stress test. Um, so, you know, that's taking, getting them in a semi-flex position, applying a valgus load, and then extending the elbow while you're applying that valgus load. And I do that for a couple of reasons, to, to see if that reproduces their lateral sided symptoms by compression but also to see if that exacerbates any medial sided symptoms. So commonly I, I find that if they do have some concomitant medial laxity, then they will get medial sided pain with that moving valgus stress test. If they have lateral sided pain during that, that is not necessarily indicative of medial elbow instability. So it's gotta be a medial based pain. And usually that that's helpful. Okay, so then you've got the patient who's, you've got a, an exam that's suspicious, you've got your physical examination and your history that um, push you in that direction. What What is your preferred imaging scan next? Um, I mean, certainly you get x-rays, but if the x-rays are suspicious, what do you look for on them? And then are you going to an MRI, a CT, an ultrasound? Are there specific settings in which one or the other is helpful? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for me, for the x-rays, AP and lateral is typically what we look at. And the AP can be really helpful. And, and sometimes it doesn't give you a a full understanding of the extent of the disease, but it can at least give you a hint that something's going on. You start to see a little bit of abnormality, a little bit of cystic change. Obviously, it's hard to see any articular irregularities oftentimes on the x-ray, but by that sort of the entry um, examination uh, to see if I see that. And to be honest with you, if I have somebody that has a relatively small lesion on x-ray, relatively acute onset of symptoms, They've got a pretty clean exam with good motion, no mechanical symptoms whatsoever. I may not get advanced imaging. X-rays may be enough there. Because if we know 
that we're going to start with non-operative treatment for that patient, then I will probably stop at x-rays and not necessarily get advanced imaging. If, however, this is a, a chronic lesion, they've started to develop mechanical symptoms, or something is really concerning on the x-ray, then I think uh, advanced imaging is warranted. Now, in terms of what to get, this is, this is a, a fairly controversial topic, um, and this is one we debate at our institution almost regularly, um, probably on a, on, a, on a weekly or biweekly basis. I, I think ultimately what we understand of OCD lesions, it is primarily a problem with the bone that then secondarily becomes an issue with the cartilage. The easiest way to evaluate bone is with a CT scan, probably the, the easiest and most accurate way to do that. So a lot of folks will, will advocate for a CT scan, which gives you a great idea of what's happening with the bone. Then you sort of have to infer what's happening with the cartilage. Now, me personally, my preferred advanced imaging modality is an MRI. And I feel like with an MRI, I can get a pretty good idea of what's happening with the bone. It's not quite as good as a CT scan. But it, but it at least gives me a good idea of the extent of involvement of the bone. And then it gives me a much better look at the cartilage as well. So for me, an MRI is my go-to advanced imaging modality uh, because I think that it helps me look at both bone and cartilage. And it can also let you do the other things that you need to do too. So size the lesion, count the lesions, determine the locations, uh, look for loose bodies in the elbow, also give you a chance to evaluate the soft tissue. You know, You mentioned some medial laxity as well. And, and the MRI can help you do that. I, I do think, Peter, you, you mentioned uh, the potential for ultrasound, and, and I think that's one that, that's very intriguing. We, we currently have uh, a few studies ongoing uh, right now at Mayo with some of our uh, radiology colleagues to look to see if we can develop some novel um, ultrasound uh, modalities and, and systems for looking at, at OCD lesions. And we've created a cadaveric model that actually, and we have been able to see it on ultrasound, which has been encouraging. So although it's not mainstream yet, I can imagine that there, there will be a day in the not so distant future where we can actually look at these things on ultrasound. But what are your thoughts? Or what, what is your go-to advanced imaging uh, when needed? Yeah, I think the idea of ultrasound is super interesting. And there's, uh, there's as far as I'm aware of, only one paper from Asia about it. But as you mentioned earlier, you can put your thumb on this lesion often. If you can put your finger on it, then you should be able to see it on ultrasound. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, it's interesting. We had Sean Driscoll on the podcast. At this point, it was probably uh, two years ago. And he talked about a paper, you know, a study he'd done showing that CT scan really did show him additional things for this particular lesion. So I'm, I imagine that there are spirited conversations um, in Minnesota among your group about what the proper scan is. Can I, let me there, ask you this. When you've gotten both scans, do you and you've and you've then measured the size? Do you think your size measurements line up, or do you think it looks bigger on CT or on MRI? In my experience, and I have done this, so I actually because this is something Sean and I discuss uh, frequently, um, it's not uncommon that we'll get both, uh, that he'll get both or I'll get both, and we'll we'll discuss cases together. We do a lot of stuff as a team. Uh, Mayo. So we very commonly share patients and, and discuss things back and forth. What I have found in those instances where I feel like on the MRI, I usually get a pretty good idea of the size of the defect, but the CT scan gives me a much better idea of sort of the severity and the detail on the bony involvement. Usually the, the slices on the CT scan are much finer, much smaller than that of the MRI. 
so I can get a much more granular picture and I can really understand the sort of the geography and the characteristics of that lesion better than I can with the MRI. But overall, I feel like the MRI is, is fairly reliable for telling me the size and showing me if there's any surrounding bony edema as well. Chris, once you've made that diagnosis of capitellar OCD and you're thinking about treatment and potentially a non-surgical approach, is there any role for injections in your practice? And does the age of the patient have anything to do with whether or not you might entertain an injection? Do you think about steroid? Do you think about biologic injections? Or do those not have a role for this diagnosis? Yeah, that's, that's a very thoughtful question. You know, for me, I tend to stay away uh, from steroids in, in these lesions. And, and part of it is to, as we know, most of these happen in young adolescent patients with open growth plates. And if we catch them early enough and we can get them to rest, they will heal. I do worry a little bit about putting an anesthetic or a steroid into, into a joint that will calm it down. And then it makes it a lot harder for me to, to get that athlete to rest. Uh, especially some of these young kids that are that are already overdoing it. So for me, I tend to stay away uh, from steroids and local anesthetic. Now, it's a very intriguing question, Rachel, about the biologics. And, and I'll be honest with you, I don't know. And I think you, you've done incredible work uh, with cartilage lesions in the knee and elsewhere in the body. And so I, I feel like things are so much further advanced in those areas uh, than, than they are in the elbow. For me, I currently don't use PRP stem cells or other biologics for these, but I do wonder. I bet there probably is a role that I don't know. What, what are your, do you, do you have any, can I, if I can ask you, you know, based on your extensive uh, cartilage experience, what, what are your thoughts on biologics for this? Well, I, I think it's a great question, and certainly there are more questions than answers about this, I think, in the biologic community, so to speak, and the bulk of the research does seem to stem from the knee. And it's interesting when we think about the knee and cartilage lesions and osteochondral defects when compared to the elbow, just given the differences of the joint in their function, weight-bearing, non-weight-bearing, loading, overhead athletes versus runners or jumpers, et cetera. So there's, there's so many differences despite the diagnosis potentially being the same in terms of a, a cartilage and bone problem. Um, I think that the role of biologics is certainly unclear, and the literature is very limited in the elbow and even more limited when it comes to OCD lesions. The challenge with putting a needle intraarticular for an OCD lesion is that this problem is really starting with the bone, and depending on the stability of the cartilage lesion, who knows if that biologic will get to where it needs to go, and I think that's the whole question with biologics is how do you get them where, which one do you pick if, if there's any, and then how do you get it to where it needs to be? There's some discussion, at least in the knee world, about potentially putting biologics intraosseous, and that is intriguing when it comes to a diagnosis and a pathophysiology such as OCDs. But again, no literature to say that that's right or wrong. I think it's more theoretical than anything else. I would agree with what you said in terms of putting steroid, especially in this younger patient population, and putting some of the local anesthetics into the joint. I do have some concerns about that. I'm not opposed to it in the right scenario, but very limited role for that, I think. And I think the role of biologics as a standalone treatment probably are very limited, at least with what we have to offer right now. A more intriguing question, and when we get into this, I think a little bit later, is talking about the potential role of biologics to augment surgery. And I think that that's a, a more interesting question, but I, I don't know if it will be, if biologics, including PRP or cellular treatments, will ever at least currently become a, a mainstay of treatment for a capitellar OCD. Pete, any thoughts on your end? Do you, do you use injections in your practice? 
I, I feel similar to you too, that I really do try and avoid uh, cortisone or local anesthetic in this population. I mean, I think the only situation in which I would do that is if someone says, you know, I, I have the meat or the game of my life and I just need to get through this one episode. And even then I'm pretty, it's, it's gotta be a big deal. I and mean, it's gotta be like, I'm going to see the scout that's going to get me a college spot and I'm otherwise not going to see that person. It's gotta, it, for me, that's the only situation in which I would even consider it, but it, that's pretty rare. Most of the time, these are chronic things that people are dealing with for a long time. And, um, it's not really a situation in which I can think of a cortisone injection really making the difference we need to make. Let me ask you this, Chris, when you, um, when you approach these patients, we've gone through a little bit of the information you collect, the chronicity, the imaging, the size. Which of those factors, when you look at them, steers you towards a non-surgical route? Like, what do you think are the predictors for success with allowing this mm -hmm. to heal without having to do some sort of operative intervention? Yeah, that's a per I love that question, Pete. And, and I, I talk to our residents and our fellows that, that I work with all the time, and I tell them, when, when they're telling me their, their plan uh, for an OCD lesion, they're presenting a patient and, and telling me what their thoughts are. The first two questions I want to know for them, question number one, is the lesion stable or unstable? And I know there's a, there's a few different ways we define that, you know, based on arthroscopic criteria, MRI criteria, but whatever, however you define it, is it stable or unstable? You know, stable meaning one where, where the, the progeny fragment is, is still attached um, or everything, everything is still attached. There's no loose bodies. There's no fragmentation. Not going to be any mechanical symptoms. Unstable is obviously the opposite of that, where pieces are starting to fall apart, break off, uh, you're getting mechanical symptoms. That, that question to me is sort of the most important. That's question number one that you have to answer. If the lesion is stable, then I think that gives us permission to start with non-operative treatment. If the lesion is unstable, then we're likely headed towards surgery. So that's question number one for me, stable versus unstable. Next question is all, and we've already hopefully answered it by this point, is Fices open or closed? And then that question tells me what our chances of success are with non-operative treatment and probably with operative treatment as well, but primarily for non-operative treatment. And, and just because, and, and every now and then we do see adults with capitellar OCD, not common, but in, every now and then I'll see a patient with an OCD lesion. And, and if, the, if that lesion is stable, then there's no harm in trialing non-operative treatment, but we know that the likelihood of success is much lower with those closed spices. So those, to me, are the two questions that I, that I want to know. Stable or unstable, that tells me if we're going to do surgery or not. And then physis open or closed, which sort of gives me an idea of how successful we're going to be. And then the third one I would throw in there is chronicity. One of the things that, that I have learned from Sean O'Driscoll is that, as we talked about, this is primarily an issue of bone. And, and I think that if symptoms have been going on for a prolonged period of time, three months, six months, or maybe even longer, this, that is essentially sort of the equivalent to a non-union uh, that's happening. And, and I think that it, once you start to get out into to that time frame, much lower chance of success with non-operative treatment. So chronicity would be sort of the last thing that I need to know if we're gonna if we're gonna do operative non-operative. So for me, it's lesion stable or unstable, physis open or closed, and how long has this thing been going on? Th those are sort of the three questions, and if those are answered correctly, then I think non-operative treatment would be appropriate. Let me let me ask you a couple of questions about that. I mean, question number one I have is. How do you tell if the lesion is stable or unstable if you only have a CT? This is a, something I've thought about many times since that I wish I'd asked Sean when he was on the podcast. 
And then question number two is, do you think the size of the lesion matters? When you see someone and they've got a very small lesion, do you think, oh, that's less likely to be a problem than someone who's got a really big lesion? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I think in, in terms of the uh, deciding if the lesion is stable or unstable, I think you can see that. In my opinion, it's easier to see with an MRI because then you can know what's happening with the cartilage and the bone. So obviously, if you have fragmentation, large flaps, loose bodies, and then, of course, mechanical symptoms on exam or a la block to motion, then that one is unstable. With the CT scan, you can still pick up on those things. You can occasionally see loose bodies. You can see some fragmentation. Um, you, you can see, um, you know, oste even osteophytes sometimes that, that, can, that can occur as well. So you, you can get a little bit of, a, of an idea of lesion stability with the CT scan. It's, just, it's a little bit harder for me to extrapolate what the cartilage looks like based on what the CT scan shows. So that's why in my mind, the, the MRI is easier. So hopefully that, that sort of answers your, your first question. And then your second question about, about size. I, I think it does matter. Um, you know, similar to Fices open or closed. I think smaller lesions were more likely to be successful with non-operative treatment. Larger ones were less likely to be successful. However, I would still say, if you have a large lesion, but it is stable, then we can still try non-operative treatment. We, because we're not necessarily harming that or doing any damage to it. We're less likely to be successful, but I still think that there, there's no harm in trialing an initial period. Now, if, it, if it's stable, but it's been there for a while and it's huge, um, it, it's, it may be futile uh, to try the non-operative treatment, though. Chris, along with size, um, one question, and this comes up often in the knee and other joints for cartilage restoration treatments, is the containment of the lesion. And I think mm -hmm. this is something going into surgery, you're going to want to know because this totally influence, at least in the knee, this influences surgical decision-making. And in the elbow, it may be a little bit different again, because it's not a weight bearing joint, but in the athletes that you're typically doing this procedure in, it is load and shear that we really care about. So mm -hmm. when the lesion is small, but unstable, and you want to go to surgery and it's falling off laterally or unshouldered and not one of those nice juicy central lesions, but something more lateral and uncontained. How do you approach that? And can you determine that on CT or is that where you really do need the MRI? And does that mm -hmm. ever change your intraoperative decision-making? Say you're going in for a, a debridement or drilling. Um, and does that change your decision-making if the lesion's uncontained? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly right, Rachel. And, and I think, obviously, we do worry a lot about that lateral buttress or the, the far lateral aspect of the capitellum being intact. I do think, I do think you can tell that on a, on a CT scan or an MRI, if that, because usually that's predominantly bone that's there. So I think you can get an idea. But you're right, that, that's a critical question. And, and it certainly does affect planning and surgical decision making. So obviously, you know, I think we all understand this, but ideally you want a lesion that's nice and contained, has a rim all around at 360 degrees, because that will allow you to sort of contain whatever treatment option you are, you're going to put in the middle of it. Whether, whether that's just simple debridement, microfracture, trying to get some marrow elements in there for fibrocartilage, or you're putting a graft or, or whatever. I will tell you, if a lesion is uncontained, but still extremely small, it might be okay. I, I, th I think it's sort of this combination of both size and containment. And if it's slightly uncontained, but relatively small, you might still be able to, to treat that with a debridement and maybe microfracture. However, as the lesion gets bigger or that 
the, the defect in the lateral buttress gets larger, then I'm going to start thinking more like this is something that needs structural support, and I'm, I'm going to be more likely to consider an osteochondral graft in that scenario. Now, one other caveat I'm, I'm going to throw out there is we, we very often talk about location in terms of the lateral buttress or the lateral aspect of the capitellum. I think another thing that's really critical to consider is how far medial the lesion goes. And I, I've seen some lesions in the capitellum that can be upwards of, of 20 or 25 millimeters, which essentially encompass almost the entire capitellum. And I've also seen those that are a little smaller, maybe in the 10 to 15 millimeter range, but oddly are relatively medial, medial and almost get into the trochlea. And I think that's important because even if, if it goes medial, yes, it is still contained, but then it becomes much more difficult to access in surgery because the ulna is in the way. Not common that you see that, but that's just a little warning out there that even if it's a small defect, if it's pretty far medial and it's underneath the ulna, that's, that's going to be a lot more difficult to access in surgery. You may have to do a few extra, extra tricks to be able to get uh, good access to it. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I've I've seen a couple now that extend into the trochlea, and uh, that is a very, very difficult problem to solve because all of a sudden your typical solutions are not going to work and you're going to have to come up with a different approach. Tell us a little bit, you know, we've we've gotten into it a little bit, but when do you think the, the arthroscopic microfracture, kind of the lowest on the totem pole of operative interventions, when when is that your go-to? Who's Who's the patient for whom that works best? Yeah, you know, I think, and this is another area, too, where we've lagged a little bit behind the, the knee. So, Rachel, you jump in here and correct me if I'm wrong or slap me on the wrist if I misstep. But the microfracture in the knee has, has, has really been falling out of favor, it seems to me, has been falling out of favor for a lot of reasons. You know, concern with violating the subconscious bone, probably don't need it, maybe similar uh, outcomes to debridement alone. And we, we recently published a systematic review actually looking at debridement alone versus debridement with microfracture. And although there's a lot more microfracture studies out there than there are debridement alone studies, but overall seemed very equivalent outcomes. So for me, I have actually abandoned microfracture in the elbow. Now, I'm, I may be a little bit of an outlier. I know there's a lot of folks out there still doing it. And I can't say that that's wrong. That, that may be just perfectly fine and okay. But for me personally, and, and I would maybe challenge folks to do this, when you're debriding these arthroscopically, remove the cartilage, you know, debride the bone, however you like to do it, shaver, curette, whatever. And then before doing the microfracture, turn, turn the flow off and, and reduce the pressure and see how much uh, uh, marrow elements you have in, um, efflux into that defect. And I have found, since I've been doing that, I have found universally that I'm able to have that defect fill pretty quickly with marrow elements without performing a microfracture. So I, I just debride it with a shaver, maybe a curette, try not to go too deep into the bone, and, and that's it. So I have not microfractured uh, a capitellum in several years, and I, I've found that to be sufficient. So that is sort of my go-to, simple, simple debridement alone, uh, no longer microfracturing these, but I recognize I'm probably an outlier in that. Rachel, what, can you tell us a little bit about your experience, maybe even in the elbow or the knee? Does that fall in line with that, or am I being a heretic here? Well, it's a super interesting concept because in the knee, I would say that microfracture amongst cartilage surgeons has also fallen out of favor, with the exception of when you are required to do microfracture as part of a trial. 
comparing to the trial product or technique versus the standard of care, which is typically microfracture. And it's interesting. I just was part of an ICL with with one of your partners, Aaron Critch, and we I, I was giving the portion of the ICL on microfracture. This was a cartilage ICL, and I had to dig into my shoulder. Uh, my shoulder procedures to get a case of the last microfracture I've done outside of a study in the last three years. So like you in the elbow, I've not done a microfracture in the knee in several years. But when you look at the literature with the knee, and there's a bunch of database studies, including the ABOS database, NISQIP database, and other insurance databases, and microfracture still remains the most common procedure for cartilage restoration in the knee. And I would extrapolate that and, and likely say that that's true in the elbow as well. And I think the reason for that is there are several reasons. One, it's it's easy to do and cheap, and you can do it arthroscopically. It can be done in a single stage. But I also think it's it's um, like you said, the key to microfracture is the lesion prep. I think the holes are less important because an abrasion arthroplasty, or essentially getting that that calcified layer out and um, and getting a nice defect, a nice pothole, so to speak. You're absolutely right. It applies, I think, in the knee and the shoulder, and I'm sure in the ankle, as well as in the elbow, you turn the water off or turn the pressure down and you're going to see some blood and marrow elements. So it has fallen out of favor, I think, amongst higher volume cartilage surgeons in the knee. For my practice in the elbow and in the knee, it's fallen out of favor. I would agree with you. And I've read your paper, I think doing uh, an abrasion, arthroplasty, or a simple debridement alone is often adequate for these defects. And one of the more uh, other interesting concepts with microfracture now is micro drilling. There's some recent data to suggest that using a mallet and an awl, which is the standard of care or traditional technique, actually might cause a little bit of a worse outcome compared to drilling. So if you're going to consider a marrow stimulation um, procedure, drilling is probably going to be better for your patient, at least in the knee. And again, I would extrapolate that to the elbow. So it's an interesting concept. Um, I, I would be in more of your uh, camp, so to speak, not, not, to, not to, um, uh, you know, I'm sure you've never heard that before. Um, yeah. but I, I would agree with you that for, for this type of defect in a patient where you're going for debridement alone and not structural reconstruction, I, I think debridement alone would be adequate relative to doing the marrow stimulation. And finally, not to hog the, all the time here, but at least in the knee, there are some studies that show that microfracture can make the future cartilage restoration, should that patient fail, have a worse outcome following the future cartilage restoration procedure. I think we need a little bit more data in the elbow to determine that, but we want to be careful not to burn bridges, particularly if a more simple procedure is just as effective. Mm -hmm. well, let me ask you this, Chris. So you do your arthroscopic debridement, you remove the cartilage, you remove whatever loose bodies you find, you turn the water off, you feel like there's adequate flow. What happens in the long term with that? I mean, is there, is that just fibrocartilage forever? You know, do you think that eventually mm -hmm. that leads to an increased likelihood of osteoarthritis in the rated capitellar joint? What, what do you, what do you tell that patient about this is the long-term outcome from this procedure? Yeah. You know, it, it that is, it's a fantastic uh, question. Pete. And, and unfortunately we really lack a lot of great long-term data um, on this, on this exact thing. And, it's interesting you, you mentioned we're so we're currently underway uh, doing doing a study trying to look at minimum 10 year outcome of the breedment uh, here at, given our experience at Mayo. Uh, so we're in the middle of, of that study right now. So I don't have an answer for you yet. I hope to eventually. I, I think it's hard. And, you know, we like Rachel said, we often sort of compare our experience to the knee. 
Well, it, it is a little bit different. You know, if you look at the average age of the patient who's getting a debridement or microfracture in the knee, that's very different than, than the 12-year-old who's getting this in the elbow. And, and so I do think that they have a much more robust healing potential. It's a non-weight-bearing joint. And, and so it, it obviously is replaced with fibro cartilage. But I do think that the potential of a 12-year-old to remodel that is going to be substantially higher than than a 60 year old um, with a with a similar knee lesion. So, although I don't really know your answer, I hope to one day. But I have to think the potential is maybe a little bit better uh, for for these young kids than it is the older folks. And and I think maybe they'd be a little bit less likely to have long term sequela because of that. But I honestly don't know the answer to that. Let me ask you this. This is I feel like the to me the telling thing is I've. Have you seen any long-term sequelae? Have you, do you have a 30 or a 40 year old you can think of in your practice where they've had a capitular OCD and they're back and they have a bigger problem? Or can you even identify mm-hmm. that patient who's had a symptomatic return to your clinic from this problem in the long-term? You know, yeah, I can, but not one that was um, caught early and addressed appropriately. I, I've had a few, and I know Sean O'Driscoll has um, a, you know, a pretty reasonable series of these, of patients who had neglected capitellar lesions as a child, and then that can result in multiple different problems if neglected. So then, then you can start to see radial head changes. If, it, if, if these problems happen when they're young enough, then they can get dysplastic changes of the capitellum and the radial head and really have some serious problems. Um, it, it's not common that we see that here in the U.S., but I have had a few patients with that. But again, that's usually a result of having a neglected uh, capitular issue as a child, not necessarily one that was treated like what we're talking about. So in the ones that have been treated like we're talking about, I have not seen that. All right, Chris, let's move on to one of my favorite topics in all of orthopedics and sports medicine, and that's graphs. And we're talking mm-hmm. osteochondral grafts. And I know we probably mm-hmm. all love those procedures. They're, they're sexy. They work well, et cetera. What is the patient or who is the patient that gets a graft as your primary operation? Who is that mm-hmm. ideal candidate where you evaluate them, you look at their imaging, and you say, I know what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to put in a graft. And, and we'll get into what kind of graft that you pick. But who, how do you make that decision as the primary surgery? You know, we, we've sort of gone through this and talked about all, all the questions we want to answer to come up with treatment. And again, I have a list of six questions that all of my residents and fellows have to answer on these cases. And then the next one, this is a perfect segue, is does this lesion involve bone, cartilage, or both? That, that's the question for me. So if it's a patient that has only bone involvement, but the cartilage is intact, well, then we just need to, usually, we may be okay just addressing the bone. And that may be some retroarticular drilling or retrograde drilling. If it's a patient that has just cartilage involvement, that's usually the simple debridement that we've been discussing. It's really that patient that has both, both a bony defect and a cartilage defect that I'm thinking, all right, if both of these are affected, then that's the one where I need to address both, which is typically with an osteochondral graft. I just want to apologize to Rachel that it took us like two years in the podcast to get to her very favorite subject. Um, and I'm so glad we're finally <laughs> getting to it. Thanks Pete. Appreciate even, it. Better late than never. Even, even though it's in a different joint, I think, I think it still counts, right, Rachel? 
<laughs> well, that's right. And I mean, and I, I love it when we can do them in the elbow. It's just when, and the big question yeah. is who, who gets them and, and yeah. uh, how do you do it? Um, and which graft do you pick? But we all, I think we all can agree that it's a phenomenal procedure, no matter where you do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So tell us, Chris, what's your preferred graft? Are you using, I've seen a, a, so many different varieties for this. What are you using right mm-hmm. now? So for me, my most common, and let's say to be specific, let's say we've got a 10 millimeter size defect. Uh, if we have a 10 millimeter size defect, we have a couple of options. And, and for me, really the options are either autograft, which I would typically take from the knee, or an allograft. For the allograft, I've gone to a um, pre-fabricated or already prepared 10 millimeter dowel that's coming from a femoral condyle. Now there is a little bit of a curvature mismatch there, but it's so it, the the over the size of it is so small that I don't think that it's really that significant. So those have sort of been my two go-to graphs. Generally, when I talk to patients, if they are in a hurry for a quick recovery, then I think autograft is is probably worth it. Going to the knee, violating the knee, you know, violating another joint and doing it. And in, in those patients, I've seen incorporation of those grafts as early as four months. Um, but in most cases, usually by six months, those are reasonably well incorporated. If, if they're not in a huge hurry, my, pre- my preference is actually to use the 10 millimeter fresh allograft. Uh, then we don't violate the knee or anywhere else on their body. Very straightforward. It's quick. It's prepared. It makes scheduling much easier uh, to do. And now it probably does take a little bit longer to incorporate. So I usually quote them maybe six to nine months for those. And that's for the 10 millimeter defects. If, if we get a larger uh, defect, say we're, we're starting to talk about 15, uh, 20 or so, that, that's a little bit more problematic, obviously. That's too big to take from the knee. So we're in an allograft situation. I tend not to uh, utilize mosaic plasty or stack multiple grafts in the capitellum. I, I would rather have one larger graft rather than multiple uh, stacked grafts. So I, I'll commonly use a 16 millimeter fresh uh, femoral osteochondral allograft plug that, that's pre, pre-prepared, um, or you uh, use a fresh capitellum uh, if, I, if I need a really large lesion, um, just like you would use for, for a fresh femoral condyle for the knee. Now there's some, some interesting literature uh, predominantly coming out of Japan where they're talking about using ribs um, which is very intriguing and they're presenting, you know, pretty, pretty favorable results. Obviously, I personally, I don't feel comfortable operating in that area. I do have thoracic surgeons available to me that would be willing to do that. But, you know, even though those graphs have done well, um, there have been some complications reported with pneumothoraces and patients requiring chest tubes and ICU stays and those sort of things too. So that, that has me a little bit leery of that personally. Um, maybe, maybe that'll change in the future, but those are my go-to. So for a small 10 millimeter or, or smaller, I prefer a fresh, uh, allograft. If they really are in a hurry, then I'll take it from their knee uh, and do an autograft. If it's larger, uh, you know, 15 to, to 20 or so, then I'm going to do either a, a prefabricated plug or a fresh capitella, bulk capitella, and then I'll, I'll make my own plug. So those are my primary go-tos. So I, it's, it's so funny you mentioned that. That's exactly what we've been doing at the University of Utah is like that exact rubric. Um, my question for you is how much, you know, we've, we've debated a lot about the curvature mismatch. When do you need the capitellum? 
How are you sizing your cap telegraphs? Are you purely doing it based on media lateral? I mean, they send you, when you get a matched graph, at least in my place, I get a picture. I mean, I get some, I can make some measurements like an X-ray, but I'm always wondering like, is this, is it close enough? How do you, how do you know that your graph is going to fit the way you want it to fit? Mm-hmm. It's, it's tough, really tough, Pete. And I think a lot of that comes on, you know, spending some time measuring on your pre-op images in coronal, sagittal, and even axial. So taking multiple um, uh, measurements to know, and and then obviously getting a graph that's the size you need, or potentially larger, so you, you could cut it down to size. But but that begs the question, you know, do we have to fill the entire graph? I don't know, and and I'll be honest with you, if if I have a graph that's a little bit too small, I might cheat it depending on the sport that they play. So we know for a baseball player, they, they tend to have, their lesions tend to be just a touch more anterior because they're loading their elbow in slight flexion. And so if that's the case, I'll cheat the graft a little bit anterior and I may choose to leave a touch of it in the posterior aspect uncovered. And then the opposite is true for the gymnast. The gymnast tends to load their elbow in full extension. So if I have, if I have a mismatch issue, I'll cheat the graft towards the back a little bit and I might leave a little bit of the anterior portion uncovered. So, but, but that does mean I try to be very careful with the medial to lateral and I try to fill that. So for me, that medial to lateral is probably the most important because I feel okay cheating a little bit anterior to posterior if needed, depending on the sport that they play. Let me ask both of you guys, because there's a lot of debate on this in the knee world. When you're doing your graft, how deep are you making your graft? Meaning how thick are you making it? And I ask this because the thickness of the cartilage from the donor relative to the thickness of the cartilage in the recipient tend to be a little bit different, especially when you're using an allograft coming from the femoral condyle versus the anatomy of the capitellum. And further to that, there's a lot of debate about how much bone is enough versus too much. And for an example, in the knee, we tend to go with less bone basically enough bone to get a good press fit if we can, or use screws if needed, but we try to get a press fit and we try to use less bone to have less of those donor marrow elements, particularly if it's an allograft, but even with an autograft, even though it's the patient's own bone, we, we try to not force the body to heal that. Um, it, so, it works so hard to heal all that bone. Is there, is that a concern for you in the elbow when mm-hmm. you're putting in these graphs, how, how much bone you have, or would you rather have a longer graph to have more structural stability? Yeah, so I have the exact same line of thinking. So my, my thoughts are the same. I want to use the the smallest depth graph that I can that is still stable without requiring additional fixation. And just as you mentioned, you know, the more allograft or even autograft, but but the more the larger the piece of bone is on that, the longer it's going to take to incorporate. And we know that that gets replaced by creeping substitution that takes longer if it if it's larger. So I'm, I make it as small as I can. And generally I have found that anything um, less than five millimeters in depth tends to be relatively unstable. So I usually go five millimeters is about the thinnest I would be willing to go. And that's for the total, that includes cartilage and bone. So typically my graphs, most commonly I would say fall somewhere between that five to seven millimeter range. Occasionally it may be deeper if it's a really big lesion, and the other thing that I'll be prepared to do too is if the primary lesion is maybe only five to seven or even nine millimeters, I'll, I'll stop there. But if there are cysts at the base of that, then I'll take a little um, autograft 
that's that's sort of crunched up and and put that in the base and do a little bit of impaction grafting in, if, if there are any cysts at the base and then make it a little bit smaller and then I'll put my dowel or my my plug in over the over the top of that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's such an interesting question. How how deep does it need to be? Obviously, there's forces on both sides. I've I've found that for that our numbers line up so cleanly, Chris. A lot of our 10 millimeter dowels have tended to be six or seven. The Capitella grafts for us have almost always been kind of eight or nine, which is about as is about as thick big as you can get. And I think you want to really feel confident. You know what I mean? With a graft that big, that you've got all the wall you need to really make it stable. Um, do you have any tricks here for access? I mean, how are you? Have you been able to do all of them through the Ancaneus? Have you had any that you're do, you're doing a, above the LCL? How often are you having to take down the LCL to really get it in the center where you need it? Has that never been necessary mm -hmm. for you? Yeah, this is the hard part. And Peter, this is why I think elbow surgeons have it so much harder than knee surgeons. In the knee, those femurs are just staring at you. You know, it's so easy and so straightforward. Oh, uh, but in the elbow, it's much, so much, easy, so straightforward. <laughs> it's, it's much tougher in the elbow because the radial head is always in the way, always in the way. So for me, I really have sort of two go-to approaches that I use, and, and I'm I'm talking open approaches for osteochondral grafting. One, I really like the void approach. So I'll I'll lay the patient uh, supine, arm out on an arm table, and then actually flex the elbow up maximally, and then make an incision posteriorly directly over where the capitellum would be just lateral to the ulna so make that incision just lateral to the ulna and actually elevate the ankyneus off of the ulna in a sort of subperiosteal fashion and then cut a little l-shaped window in the in the um in the uh, capsule and that gives me access to almost the entire uh, capitellum I've been extremely pleased with that, and I've I've been able to fit graphs in in that you know up to 16 millimeter, 15 to 16 millimeters through that approach. Um, I like that approach because it it avoids the LUCL, it avoids the radial nerve. It's it's a very safe place to be. It's a really it's a relatively small incision, uh, minimal morbidity. So that's my go-to, and that's probably 90% of my grafting is is done through that approach. Uh, really have enjoyed that. Now, bigger ones, if we're talking about a, a 20 millimeter lesion or the one I mentioned earlier that, and that you mentioned, Peter, that starts to, to run medially over, over into the trochlea where the ulna might be in the way or the coronoids in the way. For those, we, we have actually been doing a small lateral epicondyle osteotomy. Um, and so th this was developed at Mayo, uh, Sean O'Driscoll and Joaquin Sanchez sort of came up with it and then they passed it down to Mark Mori, and then Mark Mori eventually passed it down to me. So I've learned, I have to earn my way here to, to learn these tips and tricks. You know, there, there's a line, uh, then I'm at the end of that line, but it finally made its way down to me, uh, and it's been immensely helpful. So I've done that a handful of times, and basically just doing that lateral epicondyle osteotomy, which allows you to essentially dislocate the elbow uh, if, if needed, and then you have access to the full distal humerus, and then you can reduce it uh, you know, do your do your graft, reduce the elbow, and then put the condyle back on and fix it with either a single screw or maybe two screws. So for those medial lesions that go into the trochlea and the ulna is going to be in the way, that that's been my plan B. For these patients, when you're doing, let's say your more common approach for the smaller lesions, um, as you described, so you don't have to do that small osteotomy. 
what's your return to play protocol and, and what's your early post-operative protocol, especially for our younger listeners out there? When are you getting them moving? We all know that motion is lotion when it comes to cartilage. So how quickly do you get them moving? Do you have any special rehab protocols? Do you utilize an upper extremity CPM? And then when ultimately do you let them return to sport for throwers, mm-hmm. for gymnasts and for non-throwers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, fortunately these are, these are young kids uh, that, that tend to be pretty flexible. Stiffness is not always an issue, but it can be in certain cases. If uh, the, the most common scenario that I see, if, if the lesion is nice and stable, I'm very happy with the fit and the fill, then I will close it up and I'll actually put them in a soft dressing with a little compressive sleeve. I give them a sling to use as needed, and I have them start elbow motion right away. Uh, The first six weeks for me, no lifting. I don't want them loading that at all or no upper extremity weight bearing, but just working on range of motion. Then starting at six weeks, we'll initiate strengthening and then progress that. For the higher level sports, I, I hold them out for, I try to hold them out for at least six months. If Every now and then I'll have somebody who really pushes me and wants, wants to get back sooner. And if that's the case, I'll get an MRI. And, and I have gotten them as, as early as four months uh, that have shown incorporation that I mentioned earlier. And then I would, I would sort of let them start uh, phasing back into sport sooner. But I tell them if they, if they really want it, I'll do it at four months, but it's unlikely to, to show anything. And then I'll repeat it six months. So my go-to is typically to get an MRI at six months. Um, and then start the, the heavy uh, stages of return to sport at that, that point. So if they're a gymnast, that's when we would start flips and tumbles and, and those sort of things. If they're a thrower, that's when we would start their throwing program. Generally speaking, it's around that six-month mark as long as the MRI looks pretty clean. Well, Chris, I want to thank you for coming on and talking about your experience. I, um, I think this is a super interesting topic, and it sounds like from both of us, one, that there's still a lot of motion in and a lot of – things that are changing. And so it's a fun thing to talk about because I think we're learning so much about it right now. So thank you so much for taking your time and coming on and talking with us about it. This was great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You know, I, I think that this is a very fun and it's a very exciting area. And I think that we know these graphs work well, you know, we get good outcomes. Um, the breedment works pretty well, but I do think there's still a lot to learn here. You know, we're a little behind in the biologic world with, you know, PRP stem cells, uh, you see the things that are being done in the knee that are so much more advanced with autologous chondrocyte implantation and different formulations. And we haven't gotten there yet in the elbow. So um, I don't have any of the answers for that. Rachel probably does. And she, she hasn't told us yet, but hopefully she'll let us know really soon. Um, and then in the next few years, I really think we're going to see some, some nice advancements in this and hopefully some techniques maybe let us get them back a little bit faster. So very exciting area. I love talking about it. I love talking to to both you, Peter and Rachel. So thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun and it was a a real honor to be on with you tonight. I would echo Pete and want to thank you for spending the time with us and also for your contributions to the literature on this. I mean, I think so many of our young listeners and our older listeners can learn just from reading a couple of the papers, let alone all of the, the work that you've done. And I would say, I think with regard to biologics and advanced cartilage restoration techniques, I, while there's a lot of exciting things that are going on in the knee and and other joints. I would say so much of it is extrapolatable, if that's a word, to the elbow. Uh, But one of the challenges is in the knee, patients don't always do as well as we'd hope. And the outcomes with arthroscopic debridement of capitellar OCD lesions, as well as with, you know, osteochondral grafting are just so good. So it'll just depend on if, if this part of the body really needs those biologics or not. And I think time will tell. I mean, we'll see if biologic treatments can really help all areas of the body, including the elbow. 
And with that, that's really all the time we have for this podcast today. We want to thank our guests so much for joining us and spending the time with us this evening. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.